This is a message for those that work in manufacturing across the UK and Ireland. Do your engineering maintenance stores keep you awake at night? Are your engineers spending excessive time sourcing and finding the spare parts they need? Eric's on-site teams take responsibility for your indirect supply chain, including both your MRO procurement and inventory control. And, as the name suggests, we do this while being based on your site. For more information, visit www.erics.co.uk forward slash em. This episode of Engineering Matters is supported by The Optimistic Outlook. The Optimistic Outlook is a great listen for fans of Engineering Matters. It is a podcast for anyone intrigued by innovation across sectors, whether you're in healthcare, infrastructure, energy or beyond. The show is hosted by Barbara Hampton, CEO of Siemens USA, and offers invaluable insights relevant and impactful for all industries. I think what you're really going to like is that Barbara Hampton is not just a CEO, she's a thought leader in the corporate world. In the podcast, you often learn from her journey to the top of Siemens USA, getting invaluable lessons on leadership, decision-making, and navigating the complexities of the modern workplace. Barbara brings a wealth of knowledge, not just about manufacturing, but about its ripple effects across all sectors. Her perspective illuminates how manufacturing innovations are setting the pace for changes in healthcare, infrastructure development, energy sustainability, and more. Regardless of your industry, the optimistic outlook is a source of motivation and forward-thinking ideas. Barbara's expertise in connecting dots between manufacturing and other sectors reveals actionable strategies for innovation and leadership in any field. We invite you to explore the optimistic outlook and join a broad audience that values transformative ideas, including us. Search for the optimistic outlook wherever you get your podcasts. The UK is full of beautiful, breathtaking landscapes that are home to crisp, refreshing natural bathing waters. It's full of beaches, rivers, ponds, quarries, lakes, even canals that are free for anyone to take a dip in. Wild swimming has a connection to the romantic poets. Byron, Keats and Coleridge all used to swim in open water. Byron even swam the Dardanelles, and felt that the activity nourished their creativity. William Wordsworth's famous poem, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, is set on Glencoyne Bay in the Lake District, an area now popular with wild swimming. In fact, Wordsworth wild swimming tours are now offered in that exact location. In the mid-20th century, with indoor urban swimming pools on the rise and pollution starting to impact many UK bathing waters, wild swimming dropped out of fashion. but the pandemic brought it back with a bang. After the pools were shut and people began to realise the need we have to connect with nature, the UK flocked to our wild waters. (laughs) 
A National Open Water Coaching Association study has shown more than a doubling of the number of open water swims taken in the UK since 2019. But wild swimmers are in a fight to protect their pastime. Organisations like Surfers Against Sewage has been protesting against sewage discharge into bathing waters. And I'm here today because, like all of you guys, I am sick of seeing sewage in our beautiful beaches and rivers. Pollution has destroyed British wild swimming before. Today, there is a perception of, and an attention to, the risks of pollution. And it's vital that we keep a focus on water quality. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we've partnered with Atkins Realis to look into the current state of water quality across the UK's wild waters and what we can do to improve and protect it. But ensuring the UK has good water quality is not just about making it safe for people to swim. I'd probably introduce the distinction between public health safety, which is really important, but is also slightly different from water quality. So traditionally, the water industry has been principally focused on water quality and combating the reasons that uh, both inland and coastal waters do not achieve good ecological status. Stuart Colville is the Director for Strategy at Water UK. Yeah, Water UK is a trade body representing all of the water companies throughout the UK, all of the devolved nations uh, and England, and we represent them to government and stakeholders and try and help them with some of their biggest problems. So whether that's uh, what the forward plan should look like on overflows or how to deal with new contaminants, all of that falls within our remit. For bathing waters, there are strict regulations in place to determine whether a location is designated for public bathing. So there are more than, at the moment, there are more than 600 designated bathing waters across the UK. They're mostly coastal waters. Vera Jones is Atkins Realis's Global Technical Authority for Water Quality. For each of those 600 bathing spots in the UK, monitoring takes place to ensure safety for public health. If it is designated, then it is monitored during the bathing season, which normally lasts between May and September. So there will be some data on how it is classified against those standards in the regulations. So it will have a classification of excellent, good, etc. The Bathing Water Directive lays out how monitoring should take place and what monitors should be looking out for. Bathing water quality at the moment, um, according to the existing regulations, is monitored on the basis of two parameters, and these are E. coli and uh, intestinal enterococci which are indicators of faecal pollution, which can come from sewage, it can come from continuous and intermittent wastewater discharges, as well as agriculture, farming or private discharges. And they give an indication of uh, those measurements are very useful. They're a really useful indicator of pollution and they are linked to the risk of gastrointestinal illness. That's how the standards have been developed. But we know that they're just one indicator and I think with the advancement of new technologies uh, in microbiology molecular biology in particular it is an area of development is to look at how we can get that more comprehensive microbial water quality picture for our waterways. 
when it comes to ensuring bathing waters are safe from a water quality perspective. Monitoring focuses on E. coli and intestinal enterococci. But public bathing waters are just one of our waterways and E. coli is just one pollutant that can make it into rivers and seas. To understand the state of UK water quality, we have to look beyond just sewage and at the entire range of pollutants being allowed into our waterways to protect drinking water, bathing water and the ecological surroundings. When we talk about water quality, we mean about uh, exploring or investigating the quality of the water for different purposes. So that could be in terms of, sort of drinking water or waters where people might want to swim in, so bathing waters or, or natural waters, so looking at uh, the environmental uh, impacts and aspects. So it has many, many different facets, but in, in broad terms, it's about looking at the, the chemical and uh, bacteriological and microbial composition of the water for different purposes. It's not just the impact on humans. Water quality plays a crucial role in sustaining life in the surrounding environment. And all sorts of pollutants can have a negative impact. If you look at the Water Framework Directive classifications, we currently have just 14% of our rivers in good ecological condition. Tessa Wardley is the Director of Communications and Advocacy at the Rivers Trust. The group is an umbrella body for 65 individual river trusts across Britain, Northern Ireland and Ireland. And it brings together river and catchment conservation specialists. So, you know, that's, that's a lot of rivers that are not as good as they should be. And we know that none of our rivers are in good, good chemical status. The chemical condition of our water is an area that is only just starting to get attention. Well, I think one of the really big concerns is um, the chemical pollution that we maybe haven't focused on a lot and there hasn't been a lot of monitoring of in the past. And some of those are sort of particularly emergent pollutants that we're just really beginning to, to realise that they're there and they're actually potentially causing quite a big problem. Chemical pollution can enter rivers from a variety of different sources, including from everyday products used at home. So I think it's really important to remember that everything we use in our homes, every chemical we use has to go somewhere, it doesn't um, disappear. And so th there is a lot of interest in the presence of substances like pharmaceuticals or um, pesticides, things that we also have in personal care products um, and the impact they have on the, on the environment and then potentially also on human health. Studying the impact of chemical pollution and more importantly, monitoring the levels of chemical pollution is an ongoing task. So we've done some research looking at data that the Environment Agency collects on, on chemicals and probably one of the biggest points is that the monitoring for chemicals in the environment is actually really poor. So there isn't good geographical coverage, so the number of sites that are monitored is, is pretty low. Um, and there aren't enough chemicals that are monitored, so, um, you know, not many chemicals are actually monitored for. But the main sort of point of what we've found is that where we look for chemicals, we find them, and they, we find them in really quite high levels. And that's, that's a really big problem. The Rivers Trust has started doing its own analysis on the presence of chemicals in our rivers. We looked at groups of chemicals that are known to have 
an impact on wildlife and known to uh, act together to have a negative impact on on wildlife and of over over a thousand river sites 81 percent of them had harmful cocktails of chemicals in them and over 74 percent of over a thousand groundwater sites also had these same same chemicals in them so that's worrying for wildlife but it's also worrying for our water supply Tessa says to sort out the chemical pollution problem, the government needs to regulate chemicals used in industry more effectively and ban whole groups of polluting chemicals rather than just one at a time. Very often manufacturers can just then just slip onto another chemical within the same group. So if it's in the same group, it probably has very similar impacts and toxicity and it does the same job that the manufacturers need, but it's not been regulated against, so it's not banned. So you know, we need broader banning of groups of chemicals rather than just individual chemicals. As we left Europe, we've lost the regulatory, the European regulatory controls for chemicals. So our government is having to reset that. And we're in danger of slipping behind the EU in terms of regulating chemicals. So our government really needs to get onto its chemical strategy and really work out how it's going to ban the use and production of a lot of chemicals and that would actually really help in stopping them, getting them into an environment. But there is also a lot that can be done on an individual level. I think people probably think about agriculture and industry as where chemicals might come from, so pesticides used on crops and herbicides, but actually they're coming from everyday use. So our household cleaners, it's worth having a look at bottles of household cleaners that you use, they'll quite often say to them, have hazard signs on the back saying hazardous to aquatic life or something. We're thinking about that. Our detergents and things have musk odours in them that mask the odours that we don't want to smell. And they can be quite polluting and we're finding them a lot in the water environment. Waterproofing off our coats. No one wants to go out and get wet, but actually most of the waterproofing agents are quite damaging and obviously they're being washed off with the rain straight into the environment. Pharmaceutical drugs, sort of a lot of contraceptive pill, oestrogen gets into the environment. We're actually seeing fish that are changing sex um, as a result of oestrogens in, in the environment. And then you've got the sort of um, recreational drugs as well. So I think, you know, around about some of the festival sites, there's been some good monitoring that's demonstrated recreational drugs getting into the environment. So all kinds of sources yeah, of chemicals that we sort of maybe haven't been thinking about. They, they're really, there's, there's a lot of awareness now about particular chemicals where you might see um, certain personal care products that might say, oh, this doesn't contain BPA or, or other chemicals that are now known to have a negative impact on the environment. But there, there's really sort of just such a huge number of um, substances that, that form part of modern society. Um, so I think there's both some individual responsibility, but also a lot of work in uh, wastewater treatment to see how we can best remove those chemicals uh, from wastewater before it is put back into the environment after treatment. To improve waterways treatment and start preventing chemicals from entering waterways, Stuart says the existing legislation needs to be updated to include these new pollutants. 
So that there are definitely emerging contaminants which we have to take seriously. Microplastics is a classic one where maybe in the 1950s we weren't seeing contamination via that particular um, parameter. Now, now clearly that is a much more serious issue. As it happens, sewage works are pretty good at taking out microplastics. Up to about 99% are removed, but that's almost accidental. That that was never a design feature of the kit that was put in over previous decades. It it happens to be that they are quite good at doing that but frankly we probably need to modernize some of the underpinning legislation which um, dictates the targets on the water industry all of that legislation is really focused on things like nutrient pollution so phosphorus nitrates plus some other things like ammonia and so on and doesn't really recognize some of these more emerging contaminants one of these emerging contaminants is pharmaceutical pollution there's very low awareness of the fact that if you have excess um, medicine that you don't need, actually you should be taking it back to the pharmacist. You know, a lot of people will flush excess pills or medicines down the toilet and then that's getting, you know, they're very hard to remove from treatment work. So that will be getting into the water environment, for example. And things like the use of antibiotics, you know, that's quite well advertised, but, you know, we're using way more antibiotics than we, we probably should, I think. There's data that shows that we sort of overprescribe by about 20 to 40 percent in many cases. And, and that is contributing to the development of antimicrobial resistance, which is a real problem. Antimicrobial resistance is considered by many multinational organisations to be a global threat. As we expose microbes to different drugs, when they're taken by humans or given to farm animals, they evolve resistance. This happens particularly if we start a course of antibiotics but don't complete it. In 2019, 1.27 million deaths were attributed to drug-resistant illnesses across the world. But one study suggests that that could rise to 10 million by 2050 if antimicrobial resistance continues to develop. Our waterways can act as a petri dish for the development of AMR, and this has been an area of water quality that Vera has been particularly focused on. So antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, is basically resistance that arises um, when microorganisms uh, develop a resistance to antibiotic substances. And there has been increased interest in, in this field from the scientific community, and also the public has become more, more aware of this, uh, of this problem. So there are, there are some, um, the environment can act as an important reservoir uh, for AMR and also a route by which it can, AMR can reach people. Um, so we know from a number of academic studies that users of bathing waters can be exposed to antimicrobial-resistant uh, microorganisms, so they can have those high levels of AMR um, bacteria. So I think it's a really important area to explore and the World Health Organization has also um, highlighted AMR as one of the key um, top public health concerns globally. So it's really, it really warrants further attention and we've done quite a bit of work here in Atkins Reales in this field working both with um, DEFRA on this topic and also more recently we've undertaken three studies from the Environment Agency looking at the presence of AMR in the environment including a recent one looking at how we might um, go about monitoring AMR in coastal waters. So it's, a, it's very much a developing area of work. What do 
to be um, to keep an eye on and be aware of. And it's important with all those risks to also balance them against the huge well-being benefits of enjoying nature and um, bathing waters, for example. Many of these pollution problems, from chemical to biological to pharmaceutical, have a wide range of different sources, making managing the problem very difficult. As always with these kind of complex problems, there isn't just one one thing that will be the magic sort of solution. Um, I think it's looking at a, a range of different things. So limiting uh, the presence of some of those chemicals, limiting the use of some of the antimicrobial substances uh, where they're not essential. Obviously, they form an essential part of modern life in, and in certain settings, they're really important, but using them when they're, they're, they're really needed. So I think that that's really important, something we can do as individuals. At the same time, um, there are um, there are sort of technologies to look at the better and higher level of treatment of, of wastewater and exploring whether that is something that could mitigate impacts. But the first and most important step is improving the monitoring of all our waterways so we have a better understanding of our water quality. For Tessa and the Rivers Trust, the first thing that would mean is proper funding for regulators. So the Environment Agency have a statutory duty to keep an eye on our, our rivers and water bodies, but they've been very starved of funding over recent years. And so their monitoring programmes have been cut quite dramatically. So we don't have as much information on what's going on in our rivers and water bodies as we would actually like. I would say that the quality of monitoring of uh, particularly rivers in this country is not good enough. And I think uh, there's a shared responsibility behind that, but it needs to improve. Uh, I think part of this is about granularity and frequency of monitoring. At the moment, you know, sampling is infrequent, patchy in terms of geographic coverage. So I think, you know, the Environment Agency needs the amount, the, the money that is required to enhance that and build upon that. Now, I know they are taking action to strengthen some of that, but frankly, we need it to continue. But even with more funding, the Environment Agency wouldn't have much hope of monitoring all the UK's waterways. But even if the regulator was fully funded, there's no way that you would cover every centimetre of the country. And so, you know, there, there will always be areas where you want to find out more information. And that means that the water industry turns to citizen science. And the great thing about citizen science is it involves our citizens and we have people all over the country who are interested and fascinated by what's going on in their rivers. You get particular interest groups, so, you know, anglers, rowers, swimmers, paddleboarders, as well as just, you know, local residents, dog walkers, people who like to be by the river who are interested and want to know what's happening there. There are plenty of ways for people to get involved and help provide lots of useful data on the condition of rivers. So there's a lot of citizen science initiatives going on. So that might be water quality monitoring. So we will go out with volunteers and citizens with water quality testing kits. And that might be looking at sort of nutrients, so levels of nitrates and phosphates that come from sewage works or agriculture, for example. Or it might be looking at dissolved oxygen levels. It might be looking at temperatures, temperature in the water. Those kind of determinants are looked at. 
We also do quite a lot of work looking at the bugs that live in the river because they're a really good indicator of what water quality is like. So looking at them, they're known as macroinvertebrates because they're invertebrates, bugs without backbones. Um, and they they live in the water all the time so they're almost like a continuous monitor so if you have low oxygen levels then some animals will be very resistant to that and some of them won't be able to tolerate those kind of conditions so you can tell by looking at what's the little bugs that are in the river you can tell how good sort of the um the water quality is essentially the water companies themselves have been using the results of citizen science to influence their own decision making. We're increasingly reliant on citizen science for a really rich picture of what is happening in our water bodies. And there are projects at the moment to start integrating that kind of voluntary source of data into our sort of full national picture of what's happening here. Now, next year, we're going to launch something called the National Environment Hub, which will pull together overflow spill information, uh, water quality monitoring information and other sources of data. And I'd love to start introducing um, sort of voluntary uh, citizen science type data sets as well. Um, so long as they adhere to, you know, uh, standards that, that the regulator is comfortable with. But with monitoring required on such a large scale, technological advancements to improve our monitoring capabilities are needed. There are a lot of new technologies in the field, so we have a lot of new ways of monitoring. So we have developments continuously in continuous monitors, which then give us um, a really sort of comprehensive picture with regards to some parameters um, of uh, water quality, like dissolved oxygen and some of the, the, the nutrients. So you've got a, a particular sort of probe that might um, use a, a proxy sort of parameter to measure something. And uh, then that data is sent by telemetry basically to, to a server. And then it can be put out in a, in a nice or presented in a nice visual way to interested stakeholders. Um, and those probes are sort of improving and, uh, as time uh, goes and they can measure more things and they can measure them better and more reliably. So I think that that's a big change that, ha that is happening. Another development is one that we heard about a few weeks ago in episode 241 about the monitoring of biodiversity at offshore wind farms. That is eDNA, and it also shows promise for helping monitoring our rivers. Even eDNA, which is quite a, an innovative monitoring which is it's quite exciting because you can you can have a look and see that there's bacterial contamination in a river for example but you don't necessarily know where it comes from well the eDNA will tell you what the source of that pollution is so it will tell you if it's from livestock if it's from dogs if it's from human sources so that's um really exciting area that's kind of developing which um will actually tell you a lot about you know your sources of pollution and like its impact in every other field the monitoring of water quality is looking to gain efficiencies by utilising AI. There's also a lot of potential for the use of artificial intelligence in, in the field of water quality, as there is in all different aspects of our lives. Um, so uh, there's a lot of interest in using AI to provide that real-time information, but also uh, even when we're exploring a predictive element there. So being able to perhaps, um, I know there are sort of various trials, uh, being able to, to predict when there might be 
uh, a pollution event or a deterioration in water quality. When it comes to improving our water quality, there'll be lots of soft changes we can make as a society to ensure less pollutants reach our waterways. But with sewage runoff remaining one of the largest sources of water pollution, we are going to need to invest in some hard engineering solutions. It is definitely the case that we will see more sort of traditional hard engineering solutions um, introduced as part of um, the water industry's infrastructure. We've just announced a plan to spend £96 billion between 2025 and 2030 on upgrading and all sorts of infrastructure. Uh, about £11 billion of that will go on to storm overflows. But there are plans to include more natural solutions throughout the upgrade process. We're currently planning uh, the largest investment in storm overflows in this nation's history and actually it's it's almost certainly the largest investment program in these things that has ever been attempted across the globe probably something like two-thirds of that investment will be in you know what what i would euphemistically call sort of concrete and steel you know steel tanks to absorb peaks of rainwater and so on but actually roughly 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 a third will be on less traditional solutions, particularly focused on surface water management, because if we can stop rainwater flooding into these systems in the first place, the system will not become overwhelmed. And often there are lots of other benefits from managing uh, rainwater in that way, whether that's the creation of new habitats, whether it's you know flood uh, defense improvements, surface flood uh, uh, defense improvements, or other things. So we are looking seriously and increasingly reaching for these non-traditional solutions, these sort of nature-based solutions, which often bring many other benefits with them. There has been real improvement in water quality over recent decades. The threats to water quality in the UK are hitting the headlines. These can be hard to evaluate, but they deserve attention from the private sector and from government. The Environment Agency operates under serious constraints. Many pollution events are not investigated directly. Some say the vast majority. For the UK's water quality to improve again, we need new legislation to widen the scope of water quality monitoring and prevent chemical and pharmaceutical pollution. It will need new regulation to establish clear rules for water companies to follow in line with our modern understanding of pollution. And that will create a level playing field for the companies, allowing them to make the required investments. And this is something Stuart says they are doing, despite the headlines. Now, the water industry, as it happens, is not the biggest contributor to pressure on rivers. Agriculture is responsible for more reasons for rivers not achieving good ecological status than the water industry. But nevertheless, that's, you know, I, I think we take the view that that's for that's for agriculture to sort out and the government to sort out. We have to take responsibility for our bit, and it's still a big bit. It's still uh, 36% of uh, reasons for not achieving good ecological status is down to our industry, and we've got to take that seriously. So we're spending a huge amount, particularly on nutrient uh, removal. That will continue over the next five years as well. There's a significant further increase. We're already spending a billion pounds between 2020 and 2025 just on phosphorus. Again, that will go up um, over the next five-year period as well. So we are putting that investment in and we are starting to see results. But frankly, we've got we've got to go further uh, and we've got to look seriously at other sources of contamination as well. 
Water companies have a responsibility to shareholders to make profit. They alone will not be able to clean up our rivers and beaches. All stakeholders, most crucially the government, need to lay out new legislation and regulation to hold water companies accountable. And it's the public that will need to hold the government and regulators accountable. You know, the people that work in environmental sciences and the people that we work with as our clients, which uh, include regulators, water companies, some of the stakeholder organisations. So we work with a multitude of different organisations with different purposes. They, they really all, all are striving for a better protection of the environment. So we're very much all on the same page, I would say. The boom in wild swimming has reconnected us with lakes, rivers, seas and nature more broadly. And it also helped bring the issue of water quality to the centre of public debate. People getting involved by undertaking citizen science or protesting water pollution or trying to get a waterway designated as a bathing water will play a huge role in ensuring water quality starts improving. I think I'm really hopeful. I think, you know, there are so many people that are interested in in solving some of the problems. And I think the awareness has definitely helped. It does feel like people at polluting industries may be held to account a bit more. I think the regulators are, are stepping up and hopefully government um, whether this administration or the next one, are really taking this, the problems quite seriously and it feels as though we're moving into a better a better place where, you know, there should be a bit more investment, there's much more awareness and some of the, some of the problems should be solvable. The water company ones, you feel those ones, the sort of point sources are solvable and they should be manageable. Um, others are much harder to do sort of like the diffuse sources of pollution runoff from agriculture and urban areas are harder, but they are also solvable. Making the most of that local knowledge that stakeholders have, the enthusiasm and passion that people have, bringing that together with all the um, developments in technology, I think would be really powerful in helping us protect the water environment in the future. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Johnny Dowling, and hosted by me and Rian Owen. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And the man who monitors to ensure our quality is Rory Harris. Thanks to our partner for this episode, Atkins Realis. And thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.rebe.media, and on LinkedIn.